Can we build houses with physical health and well-being in mind? It is the passion for Toronto-based architect Ty Farrow who has a particular interest in how space can make us feel. His designs across North America, Asia, Africa and the Middle East have gained recognition for their focus on physical and mental well-being. He has a Master of Neuroscience applied to architecture. And he often centres his buildings around timber elements and natural sunlight. A sunlight. Ty Farrow's designed a cancer centre, which many remark doesn't feel at all like a hospital. Several schools, which he says is another crucial point where architecture and health intersect. The World Congress on Design and Health has identified him as a global leader who's making, quote, a significant contribution to health and humanity through the medium of architecture and design. Ty Farrow's just wrapped up a New Zealand speaking tour where he's discussed the concept of optimising health through environmental enrichment. Ty, thanks for your time and welcome to Nine to Noon. Catherine, good morning. How are you? Good, thank you. What was the starting point for an interest, a specialty, in fact, in the link between architecture and physical health? Well, in the early days, we began to explore the relationship of what we build and how it can actively cause health. And what I mean by that, for example, what if health was the basis for judging every public space in every building we occupy, the places where we live, work, heal, uh, play, and we can't just start thinking, what uh, if we stop tolerating buildings and design that we discovered a little bit as we went through COVID that caused boredom and disease, meaning discomfort, and certainly depression. And so we started to begin to wonder and look deeply how do buildings make us feel and how can they make us feel better, which related to then going back while I was running my practice and doing the the Master of Neuroscience applied to architecture and design, and being taught by some of the leading neuroscientists and cognitive scientists, uh, sociologists and psychologists uh, around the world, because in architecture school, we're not taught these things. And what I began to discover was that clearly uh, there's no such thing as neutral space. The buildings or the places where we go to work or to heal um, what we build affects uh, everything uh, and how we experience the world, and it can either cause health or, in fact, do the exact opposite. And we look at that either from our physical health, our eco- the ecological health of the planet around us, uh, but importantly, our mind health. And I think part of it is that um, we started looking and you know, for 5,000 years of human history, we've had a really holistic view of how we viewed uh, health and well-being, um, which related to our mind health, our physical health, our societal health. But it's really only in the last 100 years or so that our, our perspective has changed and it has become more of a pathogenic view, meaning what causes disease, patho and genesis, uh, as opposed to really the idea of what causes health, which is a sort of a, a new word that's called salutogenesis. And salute and solace comes from the, the Latin word health and then genesis from, from the, weak, the, the Greek word of origins. And so it's really trying to focus on how can space 
in accelerant to create the conditions of which we we um, we flourish and use the buildings in our urban spaces to do specifically uh, that. I don't want to uh, divert for too long, but there is a history to this. You've uh, you've alluded to it, and in fact, on on that question of holistic. Uh, it was the Enlightenment, I think, when we started dividing up the arts and the sciences and, and started getting very specific and kind of um, uh, categorised in how we uh, assess our well-being and, yeah. and who and what we are. Just a quick digression. You, you alluded to it. This idea of spaces that are designed for us being healthy in every way rather than being designed for treating our disease What's the history of it in architecture? Just pick a couple of eras and a couple of examples where it was put in practice hundreds, thousands years ago. Well, I think if if you go back to 5,000 years ago, traditional Chinese um, uh, medicine was focused on a holistic approach of the intersecting circles of how the buildings then were built that would pull people together. They would act as uh, social, mental, and ecological accelerants. If you look at, at the Romans, for example, and the, the baths and the aqueducts that, that came through the water that was flowing in, those baths, the public baths, they were both um, social as well as individual um, elements that would help accelerate health. But it's really only in the recent past that we've looked at, um, and you've alluded to through the Enlightenment period, that we started separating the rational mind and the emotional mind and said the two are totally separate. But they're, we know they're not. In fact, recent research in neuroscience shows that those things are firmly inter- intertwined. And You know, if you look at the last hundred years equally that, you know, medical researchers have identified more than 8,000 known causes or symptoms of disease. But in that period, we've only identified um, 80 known causes of health. And and clearly we find what we look for. I think of late, we've been seeing um, buildings and viewing them as machines for doing something. And the emphasis is, clearly importantly, that they need to be functional, but they need to do a lot of other things. And the analogy I often use is, is think of a, uh, a typical hamburger. Well, a hamburger is very functional. You know, you grab it in your hands. You, you don't need a knife and a, and, and a fork or a plate. Um, it also does its job, meaning <laughs> that it feeds you protein and, and some calories, but arguably it makes you feel worse uh, afterwards or, or makes leaves you feeling empty after the span of an hour and in fact does harm to you because of the sodium content and other things and that is sort of an analogy for a lot of the buildings that we create that we say okay they need to be functional okay check the box but they don't do anything else to create the conditions of which we can thrive and and flourish um, and so the book that I've, uh, which is part of the, the, the speaking tour I've been on, Constructing Health, How the Built Environment Enhances Our, Our Mind's Health, what it tries to do is really bridge the gap between the therapeutic medical world that we know a lot of and the design community architecture um, to really look at how our environments can shape our physical and, and neurological health and well-being. What is you the... Think a lot of this, 
I wanted to ask you, what is the feeling that people seek in a space that makes them feel their best, whatever the environment they're in, be it a work office uh, or, or, or a hospital? And, and I'll give you a hint at what I'm getting at. Is, the, is it Antonovsky's coherence? You've translated that for architecture. What is the feeling that people want in a space or may not even know they want but need in a space? Well, in the research that we did at the University of Venice when I when I was doing our degree is um, we started looking at how we build person-to-person relationships. So you and I sitting here, we may really enjoy our, our company and it's a stimulating environment. Uh, the discussion is is generous. It has variety and vitality and and um, it's very natural and, and engaging. And so if you look at um, therapeutic output studies on the way that we form enriching person-to-person relationships, curiously, the way our brain forms person-to-place relationships, for example, you forming the relationship of your working environment of which you are right now, um, uh, the way our brain constructs these relationships is very, very similar. And so that if you think of um, a generous person-to-person relationship, meaning think of a mentor that has done a lot of good things for you throughout your career, and they're giving and they're doing things for you that that you didn't ask for. Um, And if you take that same relationship back to how we form relationships to space, You can think of a a space or a street that you walk up and down or an office building, you know, that is generous. If you think of a street, maybe it has a canopy uh, to cover you in case it's raining. Maybe there's a bench to sit on a cafe and and you you, you smell the, the, the lovely things coming out of the cafe or a tree to protect you. Or you can think of a built environment that's not generous, like the one we were just talking about, that has a thin sidewalk and the, the windows of the buildings, the retail are boarded up and cars are racing past. That's not generous. And so what's important is that we begin to look around us, the spaces we're occupying right now. Does it have daylight in it? Does it feel comfortable? Uh, because the spaces can stimulate learning, memory, social interaction, empathy by the way we design it. Meaning that we can infuse these spaces almost like we infuse a meal. You get quite specific about this in in, in some of the principles, and I'm really curious because some of them caught my eye as making a lot of sense, and all I could think of was the person stuck in the cubicle side by side, you know, um, as so many of our office spaces are now. But maybe we could get into some of the little quirks, regardless of where you are, that can do things like aid daydreaming or creativity. What is positive ambiguity in the first instance? Well, positive ambiguity looks at how your mind um, summarizes things around you. For example, your brain, your brain is the organ, your mind is the operating system is that your brain uses 30% of all the energy of your body, which obviously is quite a quite a bit. And so your mind likes to sum things up very, very quickly. So if you see a straight corridor, for, for example, you look down the corridor, you can understand it very quickly. You know how to get from here to there. If it's confusing, 
then um, it becomes difficult for your mind to um, uh, process. But think of a, um, a street or a corridor that has a slight bend around it. What it does is it really encourages you uh, to see what's around the end of that corridor, and it moves you you forward and and along the way. So environments or patterns that are very complex um, uh, are ones that confuse us. If they're very simple, we don't want to be in them, like the the cubicles that that you've talked about. And in fact, they drain the energy from us. If if they have a complexity or a positive ambiguity that's in sort of a mid range. It's something that we really want to be in. And the um, the main one that we're very familiar with, we hear a little bit about Japanese forest bathing, meaning that you want to go walk out in, in, the, uh, in nature or a forest because that's really regenerative. The places like the office cubicles that, that you're in are ones that suck, suck the life out of you. Do you know, it reminds me, you, you know what it's like, Ty, when you're out walking on a track and you can't see what's around the next corner and you just keep going and going and going because you want to see what's around the next corner. Finally, you have to you say, want it's, to getting, discover. it's getting dark, I'd better go home. There's another one that I think is a good example of this before we get into some of your projects, and that is that it is good to draw the, the eye to an interesting background. So I might be working on my computer. I might be a student sitting at a desk working on something. But the way you can set up uh, uh, not so much a distraction, but an interesting backdrop can be powerful as well. Can you explain? Well, there's there's two things in, in perception, visual perception, um, which is voluntar- voluntary and involuntary perception. So voluntary is when you're staring at your phone or your com- computer screen and you're pulling information in that's very, very specific. The involuntary perception is everything around you. So just that little glimpse at the side of your space tells you a whole lot of information about the character, the quality um, of the space um, specifically. And that's the information that tells you, like the forest that you're walking through, or you know the lovely environment you're sitting in, where the light is flowing through the the window and and sparkling off the table. Those are the qualitative aspects that actually re, um, uh, give you energy. Where in fact the the focus, staring at your phone or the screen, is what takes the energy away from you. And so it's very important to tune that atmosphere of the space because it actually gives you energy, gives you the extra spring in your step and, and allows you to work um, uh, uh, you know, further on whatever you're focused on. Let's uh, talk about some of the applications of this in your work. And I know uh, some that you've been passionate about are the healthcare buildings, uh, hospital projects. I think there's been more than one. There was a hospital cancer radiation treatment room. And this is something where instant, instinctively you think this is a place people are not going to feel good going into because, um, you know, uh, of the treatment they might be about to go through. Can you use this example and perhaps, and perhaps some other healthcare examples as to how the construction of the environment can help calm or connect or maybe disconnect uh, the patient from their situation? Yes, and so we work primarily in the the knowledge and the health sectors and uh, trying to use, again, the spaces we create to enhance whatever's happening. That might be students learning or, as your example, somebody going for radiation treatment. 
So you're absolutely right. When when you're going in for um, radiation treatment, you think probably that that the world is beginning to fall fall apart, and you have a lot of stress. And so radiation treatment uh, rooms are called bunkers, coming out of sort of a, a warlike metaphor. And so when you you pass into these rooms. You go through a maze-like structure of concrete walls that are five feet uh, thick, and that's to keep the radiation in. And so when you walk through this space, you then get into it, and you face a huge machine that looks like, um, you know, a massive 1970s phone, you know, that's, that's um, over top of you, and it makes you feel very unsettled. And we thought, well, why don't we change this around a little bit so that when you walk into the room, the machine is behind you and you look at a garden. And above the garden is a skylight. And the skylight we had to modulate very specifically, which you can do it. It's one of the the first of a, a half dozen in the world that it has done that. So that when you walk into the room, you don't look at the medical treatment, but you look at a garden. And above the garden with the skylight, that if a, if a cloud goes in front of the sun, suddenly the, the light in the room begins to pulsate. And all the pulse, pulsating does is communicate the idea that you're alive and there's life out there. And that's very important to give you the extra spring in your step. We've just finished a radiation, uh, a cancer center in the heart of Jerusalem in Israel. And the rooms for this type of treatment that you walk into, um, they've got a screen over top of it. They have sound wrapping around it. And on the bed that you, you lie on, they have haptic sensors. All of those things are done and tied back to things that um, connect to the exact breathing pattern of, of, of your breath, called embreathment, um, at a resting state. And what that does is makes you feel at peace and relaxed because most people that go into a CT suite, you and I, 10% of us have claustrophobia and 40% of all kids. And what happens is if you go into something like a CT scanner and you're nervous and, and moving, it doesn't work very well uh, for the treatment. But what we have proven is by doing all of these sorts of things is they can improve the medical outcome of, of people going through cancer treatment as a result of the environment, using the environment as an accelerant to get better outcomes for whatever they are, where you learn, where you heal, uh, where you play or where you live. There's another uh, interesting example, and I'm not sure whether this was put into practice, but uh, regrettably we know there are certain bridges or sites that become um, very commonly used for people to take their own lives. And I think there was a particular uh, bridge in Toronto that put up a barrier endeavouring to prevent this. You had a different way of approaching this. Could you explain? Yes, and so that it's a good example because it's sort of a, a pathogenic view of how we view things, like a bridge that um, uh, in Toronto where people were were taking their lives. Um, what they did is put up this this barrier, which was a very beautiful piece of architecture on this old bridge. But what happened is um, it didn't stop people from taking their lives; they just went somewhere else. 
And so what's happened is this bridge that has gorgeous views over a, over a valley and, and the lake beyond is that it becomes now a traffic freeway that nobody wants to be on compared to when it originally was built, was a gorgeous place to walk and spend time. And so instead of creating the barriers to stop bad things from happening, people were going there because it was just, you know, an empty spot. Um, But what we've done is we've taken two lanes of traffic, the other traffic still goes through, and we've created a number of plazas, pavilions, places to come for physical health and activity, micro um, uh, retail startups. So it becomes a really central place for the community to come and share and spend time together, learn and education, as opposed to a place that's destitute. And so that idea that we build a lot of infrastructure, single-use infrastructure, to get something done, and often it has negative um, um, things that happen instead of creating you know, multi-use infrastructure. And what's a good example of that? Think of the Rialto Bridge in Venice that has, you know, retail and cafes and places to hang out, a similar bridge in Florence, Italy. We need to start thinking of how all of the places we create can cause health as opposed to just do single use things, for example, taking cars across it in the example of the bridge. Ty Farrow is our guest. He has a Master of Neuroscience applied to architecture, and we're talking about how this informs his architectural work and designing spaces uh, focused on making us feel healthy, feel good, feel creative rather than other utilities. You're listening to Nine to Noon on RNZ National. You mentioned the other area was education. And I was talking earlier about a backdrop that might invite one to look away for a moment. We all need micro breaks when we're studying. Look away for a moment. It's lovely um, if, you know, if you're writing or working hard to be able to look out the window perhaps and see some green space or some blue space. How do you apply um, design to education where intense mental effort might be underway, but also needs to be combined with rest and with uh, creative, um, um, you know, activity? One hopes. But it's it's interesting because that you know our education system really comes out of the the industrial revolution where you know parents were going to leaving the farms and where they were with their kids and they were working in factories. So we had to do something with the kids. And so we created, which probably you and I went through, that what are called sort of cells and bells, these rectangular boxes, you know, with a corridor, everybody was lined up and, and facing the teacher. And in fact, more, more recent classrooms, you know, we got rid of the windows because uh, we didn't want people to look outside and, and daydream. But the way we learn, in fact, isn't, uh, um, you know, a mechanical process, and we all learn very differently. But if you look at classroom design, and a very simple uh, issue, there was a study across the West Coast of the United States that looked at 2,000 classrooms and uh, 20,000 students that were in those classrooms, and it looked at their performance. And it said, it looked at, in fact, simply just daylight, the quality of daylight coming in and the view going out, again, good quality light light as opposed to uh, glare. And it looked at the students that were in classrooms that had good quality of light, and they performed 
20% better in their math studies and 25% better in their language studies compared to the students that didn't have the view and didn't have the light. And so if I came to you and you ran a business and you had 100 people in it, and I said, I can increase through the way I design your spaces, I can in- in- increase the productivity or the performance, and in fact, the, the well-being of your staff by 25%, would that be of value to you? And so that's using space, specifically in a learning environment, that you can enhance the outcomes of the students. And then there's the other overlay on how you can create an environments, areas that are, are, are bigger for group work, smaller areas for, for individual personal uh, study, um, uh, for person to, you know, student to student or student to staff. But all of these things can use space to be accelerants for performance. Ty, and thank we you. need to start shifting into that, that focus. Thank you so much. Ty Farrow, who's just wrapped up a New Zealand speaking tour, has a book on the way as well on this question of optimising health through the design of environments. It gets down to quite some details, as you've just heard.